Welcome to the Anifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, heavy emphasis on agitator, friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello. So I'm really fired up for this today because as someone who sort of went to university late because I was basically a moron when I was young and sort of found education late, I am very inspired by organizations and people that help lift people out of situations into new situations. And this is exactly what we're talking about today. Yeah. So yeah, I'm good at this. Emotional. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and today's guest is a founder and chief executive at Class of Your Own Limited. And through her built environment education consultancy, enables young people to recognize and aspire to have professional careers in the world of architecture, engineering, and construction. So we love her already. That is our, <laughs> is our camp. She came through Shelfield Hellam University Construction Management Program, and among her accomplishments and recognition by her peers was awarded the Richard Carter Prize for Excellence in Geospatial Engineering from the Chartered Institution of Civil Engineering Surveyors and is an honorary fellow of that organization. She was awarded a Doctorate of Engineering Honorary Degree from Harriet Watt University and honored with a member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire for Services to Education. Cheers to that. Um, it's an honor to have Allison Watson here with us today. Welcome to the show, Allison. You're making me blush, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) Allison, you are not only an industry professional, but also a social entrepreneur. And that has a lot of responsibility and power with it. And in your words, passionately committed to ensuring the built environment is seen as an exciting, challenging, and technologically stimulating place to learn and work. Love that. That's uh, music to our ears. Our listeners would love to hear an overview of your life's continuum. I mean, what was happening in your personal incubator uh, before the world knew you to become one of uh, our industry's super women? Tell us about wow. that story. <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, first, it's an honor to be here. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I identify with all those things you say personally. Left school, lost my dad when I was 13. So I knew about grief. I knew about only growing up in a working class family. In Sheffield, I knew about having rubbish careers advice because I got that at my school and ended up in a bank till I was mid-20s. Uh, went out <laughs> with a girlfriend to a, a nightclub in Sheffield, met a civil engineer, rest is history really. Went out on site, first date, first date cancelled, so site. But it was fascinating. I can remember that moment standing in front of a total station, being given a, a list of coordinates for a load of houses to set out. I didn't even know what set out meant. But when I saw bearings and distances on the total station, I'm looking at coordinate systems. I'm just thinking, this is O-level maths, actually. So it was kind of that light bulb moment for me of coming out of school with not knowing what I wanted to do, just wanting to do something with numbers. And I suppose the real sort of moment where I got to realize that there are a lot of kids like me and a lot of kids not like me who um, had no ambition, really didn't really know what ambition was and came from some families that you know, we're really quite desperate in the time, even to get through school with some qualifications was an achievement. Never mind, even the thought of going to university would never even cross their mind. And that was working. It's first major project I had on my own as a surveyor by then. And that was the 
government school building program. And that had me doing topographical surveys, measured building surveys, and traveling really in secondary schools right from the east end of London all the way through up the Midlands, up into the north of England, where I'm from, and then right up into the northeast. And I think the thing for me was getting on site, setting up my total station with my team. And suddenly you put that on, that sort of high-end equipment, robotic, reflexless, total station, lasers everywhere and all that. And you're surrounded by children immediately. And again, quite a few teachers, in fairness. And the nice thing about that is, A, they thought it was a TV camera. So they thought they were going to be celebrities anyway. So that was easy. That was a magnet. But also when you start playing games with them and saying, okay, it's one of the biggest things. And forgive me for going off at a tangent slightly, because this is me. This is how I do things. But one of the things that bothers me is that many young people, but also people who maybe don't have measurement in their lives, So that's probably practically everyone outside the built environment, maybe, unless you sew. You know, you're working in metre lengths or feet and inches, wherever you are in the world. And you can maybe try this at home. You know, next time you're around a young person, just ask them to do this and ask them to show you what a metre is. And the scary Mm. thing, and it's great because it fits on the screen here, but the scary thing is that that is probably about the average. You know, something like as wide as shoulders, not this where we're off screen, you know. And, uh, And so asking children about that in the schoolyard and then having some fun with that saying well if that's a meter how tall are you and they go 1.8 so you're about that high then we could just about fit that on the screen and then because they go oh no no we're not so I think that having that interaction and then having some real fun because this this reflectless robotic total station moved on its own it sent information it sent data backwards and forwards from a prison to the total station And I'd say to the children, how far do you think it is? If you are now established 1.8 meters and you know what that looks like, you know, we'd have them lay on the floor and mark it out. How many of you fits between here and that fence over there? So the children would, you know, we've even had them laying nose to tail, basically. And then, and they do the calculation 1.8 times how many bodies fit in. And then we've got to fit in, oh, only my head fits that bit. So, okay, percentages, how much of your body is that? So have a load of fun with mass through measurement. But then the cool thing would say, okay, bearing in mind this is reflectorless, very, very cool kit, and say, okay, if from here to here is the fence, is X meters, let's say 20 meters, how far from here to that chimney? How do you get up there? Well, you don't have to, because this is, <laughs> is it? That is the coolness that is measurement. So just things like that. But the main thing is, this was one of the government's biggest projects, okay? This was where every school child could be infected by that enthusiasm that we have for the built environment because they were having a new school built. That meant surveyors, architects, engineers, the whole family of people who work in the built environment were there on site. But the kids had no idea because all they said was, oh, builder, because they see scaffolds. They only get to see stuff when people are on the scaffold building it. So that whole sort of coming home at night and saying to my husband, my God, these kids don't know any more now than I did when I was their age. And I got on his nerves. (laughs) For years, I got on his nerves. And then in the construction recession, 2008, I just found that my phone wasn't ringing so much. Sites were stopping. And I came home one day and I just said, you know that thing that's bothered me for years where I keep saying we have to write something, we have to get school kids really, really engaged. Can I have six months? We can afford it, right? We can have six months. So I sat down at the end of 2008. Everybody was being made redundant. You remember 2008. It was a horrible time for the built environment. My friends were losing jobs. Stites were just stopping and maybe never even starting again. So there was an ideal time to sit down and write. 
But the first thing for me was, if I'm going to do this thing, I have to speak the language of teacher because I can't go in there as a land surveyor. It's like coming into you guys and saying, okay, I'm not an engineer, but I'm going to tell you how to do it. You can't just go into school and say, right. I'm a surveyor. I'm going to help you because that's just patronizing. So I worked with John Moore's University for three years. I went and kind of did my unofficially, I felt like I'd gone through a degree in education, understood pedagogy and particularly project-based learning, and then started to write. And by 2012, I'd got Mott McDonald supporting me. I went to see the big boss, thanks to a, an amazing friend of mine who has sadly just passed away literally a few days ago, Eddie Murphy, the great and glorious building services engineer that is Eddie mm. Murphy, had a brain tumour. He's passed away this week. I owe him everything. He opened the door to Mott McDonald, to Keith Howells, who's now the president of the ICE, a man of huge respect in his own right. But I actually said to Keith at the time, I just don't believe that the way that we behave with schools and that we just do a careers talk is going to solve the problem of this impending skills gap. And the BIM mandate had been released by then. The UK government was going to do all sorts of stuff with BIM by 2016. We're going to be at level two BIM. Mm Mm-mm. We were going to have a huge skills gap, so let's do something about it now. And I just persuaded Keith Howells to please support me in an adopt school program so that any child who ended up, you know, starting this curriculum that I eventually wrote, I got it over the line in 2013 as a qualification and then a whole suite of programs after that. It depended on an industry, understanding how to better help teachers to deliver their subject matter. Because most teachers have come from school to university, back into school again, So when you ask them, where do you use that mass? Where does Pythagoras come in useful? Geometry, trigonometry, measurement, simultaneous equations. When are you ever going to use that? Because that's the memory that I had. Loved it. Couldn't see the point. They could say, well, actually, you know, that Hooke's law or Newton's laws of motion or simultaneous quadratic functions, whatever it is, they use it here. And that's the built environment. And it's all around them. So cut a very long story short. Adopt a school started. So every school that we work with now, we hope that industry will adopt the school. We are funded that way through a social mm-hmm. enterprise that's set up, class of your own. Yeah, that's how I got in. Gosh, that's 15 <laughs> years in about 15 minutes. No, that's good because, I mean, what's unique about what you're doing is it's not just education, it's advocacy and it's getting people excited about real jobs, applying math, applying engineering, right? That's one of my big criticisms of the educational system. Learning by rote is good, but no one's getting anyone excited about anything other than leaving school right now. Yeah, and that's just the teachers, never mind the children. So you're currently running Class of Your Own. How would you describe that? What's the elevator pitch for Class of Your Own? Oh, crikey. Okay, so the reason Class of Your Own exists, we need to start young. And yes, you can talk about the built environment, But let's talk about achievement. The biggest challenge in the whole of the world is children getting their maths and English. So never mind STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths. Let's just talk about mathematics. So children fail at maths. And even if you look at the statistics of America, Canada, and UK, children are failing maths and they shouldn't be. And the whole thing for me is class of your own through the design engineer construct program brings maths to life. And I'd ask you to even sit in your virtual rooms and look around yeah. you. Mass is everywhere. I mean, I'm going to look at my window. My window in my bedroom upstairs is probably about 850 by 700. And then, then there's a wall that it fits in. So you've got square area. You've got percentage of window in the wall. 
Must is everywhere. And children need to know the point. So the biggest elevated pitch for Class of Your Own before we even get started on built environment careers is improving maths. Because mm. it's real. I'm with you on that. I mean, I when I think back in high school, I was intrigued by trig, but I was my brain space when I was 16, 17 was not in school. It was on sports and girls. I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, so I have a little bit of a background in surveying because I, that's where I started my education program when I got out of high school after making a whole bunch of other adventures. But I remember thinking, like, if I ever graduated from surveying, I was going to find myself in northern Canada and four feet of snow holding a stick with no women around. And I just, <laughs> it's not I just that wasn't for me, but it was. But I became, <laughs> but I, I, I started to appreciate the application of maths and surveying when one of my colleagues ended up on a ship, a drilling rig. Okay. In the Arctic Circle and having to position that drilling rig yeah. in the water surrounded by ice in the middle of winter, all of a sudden it changed. Now it was an adventure and the math allowed him to participate in that adventure. Now I never went back into surveying. I went into the construction side and then onto the mechanical side. But I remember rewriting a design sequence so that I could understand it. I wrote it line by line and that design sequence, early 80s. So Excel hadn't even sort of blossomed yet. Was that Lotus one, two, three, maybe? Yeah, well, yeah, it was. Right? <laughs> so you're it was right. just the, the Mac computer. <laughs> but I remember rewriting it and then finally getting it into a spreadsheet. And that spreadsheet served me for almost 30 some years. Nice. You know? Yeah, yeah. Must have Yeah, right. So and that's the thing about math and it's the fundamentals and it'll never change, but it allows you to see the world in a different way. Yeah. And I never yeah, yeah. got that till my brain was ready for it. Yeah. And that's the same as me, you know, 24, 25 years old on a site for the first time with a theodolite and suddenly go, that's why I did the maths. I get it now. And my argument is why can't you have that experience when you were 11 or when you're seven, you know? Right. We had some fun, even with little people. I wrote, uh, cause the Roman term for a surveyor is an agrimensore. And, uh, so I even wrote a little program for little children. So we talk about Palmus Maximus, we talk about Digitus, we talk about the cubit, everybody knows the cubit. Yeah. And so we had children being Roman surveyors and we had them dress up for the day as Romans and measure their classroom <laughs> in Roman speak. So they had to do their dimensions in Roman numerals. So they had to understand Roman numerals. So it's like a code. It was like right. baby code. It was yeah. cool. And the kids got to dress up and be Roman. And then suddenly you realize that the mathematics that they use in Roman times to mark out these incredible roads, how do you get a road straight in Roman times? You know what? The same way that you do it now. <laughs> so that's the wonderful thing where children can be kind of these mass heroes dressing up and having fun. That was the first thing for me. When I sat down and started to write a program, I thought the top line has to be fun. It has yes. to be fun. And you've probably got the measure of me, no pun intended there, but I'm fun, I'm happy. I'm the happiest person I know. And you spend a long time in school. You spend much of your, from eight till four, you are on the school journey, if not in school. That's a hell of a lot of life for a little person. And you need to have fun, right? Yeah, yeah. So, it's, it's a chore otherwise. But God, I love that. What did the Romans, it's the old Monty Python saying, what did the Romans ever do for us? Well, how long have you got? You got this. I mean, back with that engineering. I think we're engineers yeah. with spears, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's my description of the Romans. They were hard. 
but they were engineers with spears. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I was in uh, Italy, so it was two years ago, and uh, got a chance to tour some of the old buildings. And uh, it was great because we were there. It wasn't tourist season, and it was rainy and cold. And so in one of the large sites, there was nobody there. And there literally was nobody there. There was just people at the park gate. And so I got to walk around by myself in this monstrous place. Imagine it I was Roman. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah, what absolutely. would have been like to be Roman and be given this task of developing these structures in this land? Like how do you even start? And how do you do the layouts and where do the materials come from and how many people is it gonna take? And yeah, you know, and so you just start it's imagination. And I think one of the greatest gifts that you can give, like as a teacher, that you can give other people is the ability to release their imagination. Yeah, so you, you use the word about adventure. And to me, yeah. education should be an adventure. Every day at school should be an adventure. And I think what's been amazing when children start on this program, it very quickly becomes favorite subject because it's fun. Okay. Right. It comes favorite subject because lots of people are in the room from industry who tell stories. One of the things, I mean, it's kind of nice for us older folks, you know, because a lot of the strategy for a lot of the bigger firms, you know, the, the Belfabetes, the Maces, the Arabs and so on of the world, they say, oh, we'll put our graduates in because they're close to the age of the children and they can inspire them. Well, yeah, but put some of the older guys in as well, because people like us have stories in a way that grads don't. You know, we can mm-hmm. talk about that amazing project that we worked on. And you remember when he did that and she did that. And wasn't it funny when that happened? Kids love stories. And let's face it, big kids love stories. We're never too old for a story. So again, another thing that I always ask of industry, please don't just give this to the grads because they've not got a lot of history. We've had uh, Lloyd Alter on. I don't know where the term came from, but he introduced it into our lexicon, you know, the Rubble Club. Being a member of the Rubble Club where as an architect, you design a building at some point in your life, but at the same time in your life, you also see it destroyed. (laughs) And that happens when you've been around. When you're part of the Rubble Club, you've got scars. (laughs) I'll tell you why. It works what you're doing, right? So you're right. Most people in the West are horrible at math. And that's a teaching problem, not a them problem, right? Mm-hmm. we got the same brains to do math as the Romans had, right? Yeah. Maths. Yep. I'll get back to my English. Maths. It's mathematics, which means math has an S on the end of it, by the way, in North America. <laughs> right? But teachers don't talk in an applied way. They don't give the example. They don't show what's possible or even what it's intended to do, right? This is the failure. And it seems an obvious gap to me that should be filled, but I don't understand why the educational system doesn't fill it. Well, I think think we can entirely forgive our teachers because actually it's not their fault. And you know something, I think now I've worked so close with teachers, you realise I mean, the stuff that they have to put up with, the pay grades they're on, the conditions that their schools are in, the books that they can't access, the technology that they can't have. Yeah. I mean, it's just horrendous. I actually took Jim Knight, who was an education minister in the previous Labour government. I actually managed to persuade him to come into school one day and see how long it takes from switching on the computer to actually booting up that software to allow kids to design buildings. Because we use industry standard software with respect. We'll use Lego to concept but we want the kids power there right oh totally and the computers are just pathetic in fact i think the romans have better computers than half the schools do at the moment (laughs) um, it's a big frustration because the teachers generally go on a teacher training program in university and then they'll go into school to continue their profession to get effectively their chartership to allow them to be a teacher 
So actually it needs to go back to university. And if universities aren't teaching them ways to apply their craft, if you will, then a teacher will always come through and go revert to a textbook. And most teachers I know want to be innovative, want to be exciting. But unfortunately, industry, when we go in as industry, we tend to come in at careers week. So the school will book people to come in and, you know, do the careers fair where we all rock up. We have a table each. We put down some leaflets and some brochures. We put a pop-up banner up and we say, aren't we cool? We are this company. And when you finish school, you could come and join us. That's too late. Uh. Go in there and show them how, when, where, what, why. So to me, it's not about showing off in a week in May in careers fair. It's going into the classroom and supporting the teacher, being the teacher's best friend. So when a teacher is teaching something like simultaneous equations or something in physics or even geography, in fact, any subject, actually, then be there to say, oh, and the real life version of that is this. Yeah, right. And help them bring it to life because they appreciate it so much. Teachers take so much flack. There isn't a teacher in the world who goes off for six weeks and has a holiday, believe you me. <laughs> I don't know harder working people than teachers. So, yeah. but we could be a lot more helpful. And I think half the problem as well is governments. I always once told, and I don't know if this is true, but if you want to be a minister in China, you have to have had at least 10 years in the profession of what you're going to be looking after, your ministerial directive. Well, let's take about, think about this country. Minister of Education, I think they changed four times in as many months recently. You don't have to have any background in education. You never have to get on the ground and, and actually feel what it's like to be a teacher or feel what it's like to be an engineer for that matter. So I think there's a massive disjoint. I think anybody who aspires to be in government should be made to do work experience for at least a year in the department in which they have an ambition to lead. But what yeah, you're talking about yeah, is a disconnect between like, there's methodology of teaching, right? Which is you get a class of 20 or 30 people. That class will tend to go at the speed of the slowest people in there, right? Have you ever heard yeah. of a thing called Khan Academy? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Khan Academy's approach is like, you set a problem, you get people to drive it, and then you deal with the people who are struggling and give them the one-on-one -on -one coaching. And then there's like resources around for people who can cope to move on at their speed, yeah. right? I really like that model. Every teacher I speak to resists that like it's the plague. Why is yeah. that? I think because there's not enough resources. I mean, at the moment, there's such a lack of teachers and teachers are leaving in droves at the moment. I've known quite a few teachers who've taught deck and have now gone back into engineering or have found a new profession. I mean, Sam Morecambe, I'm, I'm going to quote her. If she's listening, Sam, she's such a heroine. She was working at Atrium Studio. She was teaching deck. She's now pre-construction manager for a construction firm in the southwest of England. There are people like that who've gone, you know what? In fact, another teacher, Sam Westerway, worked at the same school. He's now BIM technician at Hall E. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so there you go. But I think teachers are just, there is so little respect at government level for what they do. You know, at the moment, I don't blame them. And, and I think at the moment as well, all the applied subjects, design technology is on its knees. It's seen such a decline. And one could argue that do we need to be making key rings and pencil cases with kids? We could be a lot more exciting about design technology. But the subject, is, again, if you look at the decline in the UK of design technology, and it's always been shuffled a little bit like construction to less academic children will go and do DT or be encouraged down there. And all the bright young things will be doing physics and maths. 
and it should be flipped on its head again. You know, we should be driven by design and technology and support the maths and physics that goes into it. But I don't know. I think we are very old school and prehistoric almost. I remember there was a, a famous quote, mm. and I'll, this is not verbatim, but a certain minister said, you know, ancient Greek would be more interesting for children. And you go, are you for real? <laughs> you the environment of ancient Greece, but ancient Greek? Really? <laughs> That's what you're dealing with. You said that as so. you're conjugating a Latin verb. You know? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's coming handy now. I mean, admittedly, I did Latin at school, Never saw the point because I wasn't going to go into medicine. And even for medicine, yeah. you don't need it anyway. But at least now I'm learning Italian. I do get it now. I can go yeah. back to my little bit of uh, masculine, feminine, neuter, and all the vocative, genitive, and all that. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> the Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload, and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process. Go paperless, increase efficiency, and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners. Adapting to your workflows and processes and doing things your way. Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows. And Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. And now, back to the show. Obviously, I was educated in the UK, whatever that's worth. So I went from an inner sink school to a Shires Grammar School, right? So 13, I left this inner London stab you in the face school. I was like, top of the stream. And then I went to this grammar school where I, w- I thought I was all there, and it turned out I was not. <laughs> and I was like, bumped down. In the grammar school, there was this pure maths and physics and that. That was like, the real stuff. And then yeah. if you weren't quite good enough for that, you did applied. And the math yeah. teachers were the worst snobs in the world. There yeah. was the pure math people and the applied math people. When you were doing applied, yeah. you were considered, you know, you're not quite good enough. Yeah, I had that teacher. Right? Were well, we at the same school? <laughs> <laughs> I went to Rivers' grammar school for what it was worth. Yeah. So I didn't understand that distinction at the time. And I loved applied maths because I'm visual. Yeah. That made yeah, all yeah. the sense in the world to me. That dude speaking pure maths may have been speaking Latin. I did not get any of that. And it's all screwed me up a bit to the point where I came out thinking I didn't like it. How do we break this? The people doing applied maths are going out and doing real jobs, in my opinion, right? So this yeah. is working class chip shoulder coming here, right? I'm the applied maths game. We're going to beat up them pure maths people at break time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> them, I mean, was, to be fair, I remember at 16 years old, I loved applied maths. I really did. I was in the top stream again, working class Myersgrove yeah. school. There were 2,000 kids back in Sheffield. And I can remember, I mean, I was good at maths. I was good at maths. And I remember going into my O-level, into the gym. We all sat there in rows, hundreds of us. <laughs> and I came out and all my friends were going, oh my God, wasn't that horrible? And I said, I think I got an A. I really do. And it wasn't <laughs> arrogance. I just, yeah. but seriously, Robert, it wasn't oh, arrogance. <laughs> it was just, I understood it. I understood yeah. what was on the paper. I enjoyed doing the paper. I came out feeling 
that I'd done well. And I got an A. I wasn't surprised. It's not arrogance. It's just confidence in mathematics. But then I said, right, I want to carry on this because I wanted to do pure and applied maths. And I went to my maths teacher and said, I want to do pure and applied. We don't do it in my sixth form. And he said, no, but you need to stay on. You will be great at maths at A-level, but I need to do pure and applied. Now I left school as a sort of, I thought I knew better than my teachers and went to FE college. I went to the local college where I could access pure and applied maths. It nearly finished me off. It was horrendous. And I longed to be back in school. And I'm a big fan of keeping children in school as long as possible because to me, school nurtures in a way that college doesn't. You have to grow up really quick. I remember in my maths class, there were only three of us. And one of them was a 38-year-old guy who used to come in, you know, so, you know, I'm 16, he's 38. We were pulled apart in our experience of life for a start. And, and even the maths teacher was kind of like, okay, off you go. My class is finished, go. You couldn't go to him after class and say, didn't get that. Can you just go through that again? And whereas in school, the wonderful thing about teachers, for the most part, I know that not every teacher is the same, but for the most part, teachers were there as an extended family. And I needed my family because, you know, I'd lost my dad. My mom got remarried. It was a bit chaotic at home. And at the end of the day, being thrust into when all that stuff was going on, you kind of went to school and, and needed that comfort. And you wouldn't need the school to kind of wrap you in cotton wool that a school does. And I think the FE colleges just failed miserably on that. You know, I wish to God I'd have stayed in sixth form. I think I'd be writing a very different story if I'd have stayed in sixth form. I would have probably gone straight to university from school. But then again, I would have never had the experiences of joining a bank, realizing I didn't want to be in finance, going to a nightclub, meet a civil engineer and the rest is history. I'd have probably been an optician. To be fair, I was never going to be a doctor because I don't do blood very well, but I certainly would have been an optician because I also used to love lenses in physics, refraction mm. of light. I thought lenses were cool, convex, concave, all that. So I thought mathematics, lenses, optician, but actually I was Natural rubbish equation. at biology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First off, let's salute the slow dance that civil engineer gave you. What a dance, right? Well, we never danced. It's the fact that I didn't want to be in a nightclub and neither did he, so. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good night out where you change your career. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Definitely not in Josephine's and Sheffield. Slow dancer was not on the mix. <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch of lessons in here for you know, our students that are maybe working on a higher level degree. Maybe they're in their master's or doctorate program that they need to hear in the story. And Adam, you and I have talked about this before, like the value of an academic that actually gets to spend a couple of years in the real world is a completely different individual than those that stay in academia. Yep. When I think of Dr. Bill Bonfliff, you know, who was on that path, but then he went to work in a, for a real engineering company and did real engineering and applied the math and then went back to school and he can talk both ends of the spectrum. I mean, he can get into the advanced math, but he also understands in the real world when you get out there that you have to apply basic stuff. Yeah. If it gets too complicated, well, then you're back and you may as well be an academic. But in the real world, it's not like that. And I think about even in my own practice when we were hiring engineers and, you know, we wouldn't let them run the software for the first six months. Drove them crazy. All their friends were all in engineering companies and getting onto the new software our guys we said no you do the manual math for six months you need to understand where those numbers from the computer come from mm -hmm. so they got to use real applications they got to see the numbers and it wasn't difficult math 
Yeah. It's just basic yeah. stuff. But then when they got onto the software, then they could do the fancy shit, but they knew where the numbers came from. Yeah. And you know something? There's some fantastic people in the geospatial industry over here who've been helping put together an apprenticeship for the past few years for young, you know, aspiring surveyors come out of school at 16 or fancy a career change at 40. It doesn't matter. But the apprenticeship route in England is becoming really, really, really exciting now. And a lot of our students are choosing degree apprenticeship rather than a degree straight for three years because they want to learn. It's not even the earn and learn stuff. They just want to learn real life engineering, real life surveying. And we were looking at the maths of survey. So I've had an amazing maths teacher working with me, big up to Paul at Aldergrange School. And I said, okay, everything from the curvature of the earth to standard deviation to the trigonometry of surveying through to even, I don't know, top of foundation to finished floor level and how many bricks will fit in that space. All that mathematics that you might use on site as a surveyor. And you know something? A lot of that maths is no more advanced than the GCSE, the O-level, whatever it is in Canada. It's no more that. advanced. Thank you for yep. saying that. Because there's a yep. lot of um, snobbery and like, I've got the secret formula. You're not going to get me on my own soapbox. And that is, is that reading research papers by pure academics, they have no practical skills in real life. They search out the data that supports their thesis or their position, and they ignore all of the other data, which is the real world data. We've seen that in the ASHRAE data based on post-occupancy evaluations where certain researchers, I'll not name them, but if they're listening, they'll recognize themselves. You know, where there was literally <laughs> thousands and thousands of data points, and they only focus on the ones that support their statement, and they've ignored everything else. Well, in our part of the world, in Canada, all the data that was ignored applies 100% to me. So on a bell curve, their database supports their position, which happens only in a small part of the buildings that they surveyed. But the outliers, that's my world. So my bell curve changes depending on where you are, right? Yeah. Anyways, yeah. that pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> because people read the papers, right? And they think, well, this person has a PhD, so therefore they must know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And they don't read the whole paper. Like they don't read the end statement that says, yeah, this data only applied to this particular set. And there are other cases where it doesn't apply. Like they don't read that. They just read the headline, the conclusion, or the abstract, and then they move on. That just drives me crazy. What yeah. you said is really on point and powerful, and people need to get their head around this. Most jobs are O-level math. So O-level math, it's maths. I'm so mid-Atlantic. <laughs> you need a swear box. Yeah, it's <laughs> I need a fine... <laughs> Is a high school um, diploma math, right? So yeah. high school O level maths in UK is high school diploma math in Canada and the US, right? And most work in most jobs applied to everyday life is no more than that. There's a need for well, certainly in my there's life. a need for yeah. super Oppenheimer level equations, right? Yeah. And yeah. they have their place and you learn that and you learn to add that on to your O level math as you go through your job, right? Why can't people say that? Yeah. And you know something seriously here, Adam, it stuck my neck out along with some of my colleagues and said, in terms of the surveying qualification, for example, I mean, that's my world and design engineer constructs my world. So I can only talk built environment. But can you imagine if you mandated this kind of learning in secondary schools, in high schools? So children actually not only learned the maths and learned it well because they found it interesting and useful. I mean, let's talk about useful maths. Yeah. yeah? 
you know, the PISA tests around the world where we measure one country against the other in terms of how our children perform in science and maths and so on. Can you imagine what a leveling up process that would be if children could actually study something that is real world? And here's something I used to talk about that whole leveling up process, but let's even slightly lean into climate change and all the stuff that's going on at the moment. There are some statistics around the built environment globally contributes 39% of the world's carbon that will all live in cities by 2050. Well, there's 9 billion people live in cities by 2050. And also that, you know, we are the most wasteful industry in the world. There's that bit, that bit that we kind of know from, uh, you know, the reports around the world. And then the other narrative that is banded around all the time around education is that how are we supposed to teach children for jobs that don't even exist yet? And I go, get real people, because with all those statistics that we do know around waste and energy and carbon and infrastructure and cities in the future, we might not know what the jobs are called, but you can be damn sure that they're going to be built environment and infrastructure because somebody's got to build those cities in which we're all going to live. Someone's going to solve the carbon crisis of which we contribute 39%. So even if 39% of the world's kids contributed to the built environment, we'd not be worrying about sea levels rising and, and 1.5 degrees. I just think we need to change the narrative. And instead of going on about well, for me, it should be mandated that children learn about this kind of stuff, because if we're going to save the planet in the future, we have to start now with the 11-year-olds. Yeah. You know, we used to talk about 2030. It was years away. And now we're in 2023 in seven years. So a kid starts school at 11 and they leave school at 18. Seven years. I better That's get good. on it. Get working. <laughs> Seriously, I'll run it. I'll run it. <laughs> Next to the world. You've hit a nail on the head here, right? This is one of the things that frustrates me with all these arguments and this virtue signaling about climate and stuff, right? I saw a speech for someone, I can't remember who it was, but basically what this guy said was, why does no one challenge people to solve it with technology and engineering advancement, mm. right? Instead of super gluing yourself to the road, why don't you mm. go to university, learn some skills and make a difference, right? Yeah, yeah, that's where it'll come. That's how we'll solve it. I think, you know, you talked about elevator pitch, you know, it will be rather arrogant of me to say deck will save the world, but we do need those sort of children who do deck, you know, the sort of children who do come out with the engineers. I want to tell you a story as well. What's about, deck? Um, deck? Define deck? deck? Design, engineer, construct, the program that I wrote, yeah. you know, so look, this whole program. If you was American, you would be not shy about saying any of that, by the way. Be more yeah. American. Just put it yeah. out there. <laughs> the great British Reserve and all that. Yeah. But you know something? When we last spoke, Adam, about I think DEC as a program is the great leveler. We get all sorts of children doing our program. We're going to be starting in prison for offenders. So even adult education now is there. And I actually challenged, it was Carillion before they went bust, of course, but I challenged the head of justice who used to work on all the prison contracts. Why are you talking about your social value? Why are you talking about teaching offenders painting and decorating? Why are we not teaching them about BIM and digital futures and training them up? Because one thing you have in prison is time. Yeah. A lot of people are in prison because they maybe got it wrong on the computers, you know. But can you imagine if we actually using this kind of program, trained offenders, can you imagine when they come out? Because they'll have some, a lot of the reason why people go to prison is because they've had a bad start in life. Okay. So if they're good start in life around education, Education, you ask a child in the sort of third world Africa, what do you want in life? They don't want a new pair of shoes. They want education because education saves lives and changes lives and all that. It transforms lives. 
And I think for me, when I'm talking about the whole breadth of children and young people and adults that we've come across in the past, yes, we teach children in grammar schools. Some grammar schools do get it, strangely enough. Some grammar schools go there. I do have a grammar school just over the hill from me where the young lad with four A stars in maths, physics, further maths and the project they did said, I want to go and do a degree apprenticeship. I don't want to go to Cambridge or Oxford where my school's positioning me for. So now he's at Mott MacDonald on a degree apprenticeship at the University of West of England doing civil engineering. He's happy as Larry. Mott MacDonald think he's amazing. Dermot Twizzle, what a cool dude. You can Google him. He's amazing. We have people like John Haylett grew up in Jaywick in Essex. He'd come from a single parent family. Um, you know, again, he was one of those young boys. There was a report came out about poor white boys and coastal towns, that this is the sector that is failing on the mass all the time. And again, globally, it's not racist. It's not anything. It's just a fact. Boys from working class families and poor white boys, particularly in coastal towns and rural areas and so on, where they are marginalised, tend to be lower grades in maths and so on. And John was destined to be one of those boys. John started deck. He had an amazing teacher, Sam Hodge. Big up to Sam, who's now teaching in Penang with his own deck kids in Penang now. And just that kind of father figure that wrap your arm round and, you know, I'm going to help you and support you, John. So John took deck level one. He took deck level two, which was the GCSE. He took deck level three, got a grade A, ended up at Anglia Ruskin University. He's at Atkins building Surveyor. And he's just got a first from Anglia Ruskin. That is awesome. <laughs> and can you imagine the story that he'll tell his children? Right. Yeah. So that is life-changing stuff. When people like poo-poo education and like training, the whole thing, it's not just teaching, it's training, mentoring, guidance, yeah. role model, yeah. right? You need yeah. all of that yeah. to affect the change. It's so important. It really gets yeah, me. Yeah. yeah, and you never forget. I mean, I can name my favorite teacher, Alan Barker, when I was at school. He was a physics teacher. He frightened me to death as a physics teacher, but he was my form tutor as well. And he was just funny and wacky, burns his tie on the Bunsen burner, that kind of teacher, you know, hair like this, a bit sort of scraggy. And <laughs> but my God, did he believe in me? And that's sometimes all a child needs. And that's why I always say, you know, teachers take a lot of stick. They really do. But my God, they are game changers. I actually um, say about teachers that they are the built environment's best chance of climate change, solving all those problems a lot, because we need great teachers to produce great kids, to produce a great workforce. So my advice to any government is invest in teaching, give them the proper tools they need to do a good job and get them out into the workforce and learn where their craft applies because we need superheroes to solve yeah. all these problems. This yeah. is, I know, Captain, my captain discussion, right? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really, really is. And you yeah. think about in a real world, so we just came through COVID and of course it's still on our radar screen, but... There were schools that allowed teachers to bring in the filters and the filters were used to talk about particles and air velocity and diffusion in a real world situation. Yeah. And people put ribbons on the fans coming out so the kids could see the airflow. They would put balloons on top of the study Bernoulli. Like they used that process of purifying, cleaning the air to teach. Yeah. And other schools was, nope, you can't have it. And yeah. they came up with all of the excuses and rather than seen as an opportunity to teach science, physics, chemistry, all of that. And then if you really wanted yeah. to get into the math, you could, but other schools just, nope, not going to do it. A yeah. solution to humanity's problems right now, if you're talking about climate and things like that, 
and pollution and environmental degradation is science, technology, and engineering. That is a solution, and we are doing zip to deal with that, and that drives me insane. There should be an engineering coup d'etat here. (laughs) Well, and one of the challenges, it has to do with communicating that, and that is an actual social issue, not the science part engineers are great at. Adam, you and I have talked about this before, and Allison, you'd recognize this too, that we're not always cut from the communicative cloth. We don't have oftentimes the empathy. Too many tisms going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I think about engineers that are great communicators, that they do change the world, but they also understand the power of communication. And yeah. that in itself is an art form. Communication is a form of engineering. There isn't that, you know, not everybody learns the same way and recognizing that there's patterns and Mm. working with those patterns. It is just another form, isn't it? And do you know something? I know you're not going to believe this, but I was so shy. I mean, the perfect (laughs) job for me was a surveyor because I'd go out on site, I'd just be there with my dog maybe, I'd not see a soul all day. And that was fine for me. I was just happy. I love being outdoors. You know, I'm still the same now. You know, if I can get outside, snatch an hour and Feel the sun in your face. I know you don't get it much in the northwest of England, but feel the sun in your face and see the hills. And to me, it just, it sounds all a bit cliche, but that just fills me with absolute joy and pleasure being outdoors. And it's only when I started getting into education that, you know, I realized, oh my God, I'm going to have to speak. <laughs> you know, oh my God. I got, and the first class I ever worked with, I actually went to a local school all over the hill. Unfortunately, they don't do deck anymore, but Accrington Academy. And I went into the first class and I said, please, could I borrow some children? Because I've got some ideas. I need to test it. Can I come in and try these ideas? And say, oh, yeah, yeah, come in. We loved industry coming anyway. And the first time I ever stood in front, I think it was about 80 children. And it was just trying these ideas out for this first workshop that I ever wrote. And I was like this. My hands were literally <laughs> like this. A young lad came up to me and said, Miss, why are you shaking so much? <laughs> terrifying Johnny (laughs) seriously you know something I think this is what puts a lot of people going off into schools because they go well the first thing is I've not got my DBS check I've not got my what is it criminal check I'm not allowed to go in no you are actually because as long as you never leave a teacher you are allowed to go into school so don't give me that as an excuse but the Mm. biggest thing is that they're afraid actually because standing in front of a load of children is a little bit intimidating Children are evil, mate. They can sense weakness in a teacher. Absolutely. We all did it, didn't we? Yeah. We all yeah. have these little, you know, when the teacher turns your back, let's all stamp our feet on the floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know>? yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's hard, but you're not going in to teach. You're going in there to excite and have fun. Yes. And what's lovely is that I can't think of any occasion where I've not been in the classroom with somebody who's come in as a guest to do something, whether it's an engineer, an architect or whoever, and they've left and gone, oh my God, that was great. When can I come again? If I was uh, king of the world, not likely to happen, I've come to accept slowly. One thing I would change is if you're a chartered professional, like surveyor, engineer, whatever, you would have a mandatory requirement to teach part-time, maybe half a day a week or something. You'd be attached to a school or college. And your job will be going there, teach, yes, but inspire and tell people what it's like to go out and build a skyscraper, build a bridge, build a road. Yeah, and absolutely. They, there's a the old meme, right? My kids used to say, Dang, every time why you say, yeah, I worked on that, I worked on that building. Because you're proud of it, right? It's yeah, real. Totally. I helped make I mean, that thing happen. 
Yeah, and I would drive along. And even now, my daughter, who's now 20, will drive past the building site and she'll go, yes, mommy, I know everything's in the right place because of you. Don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> so she can't get to do it for me. <laughs> yep. But, I'll, you know, even an example, Roma Agrawal, fantastic Roma, you know, civil engineer. She worked on the Shard in London. The Shard opened and I phoned Roma up and I said, please, can I bring a group of, of school kids down? But please, not to go around as a tourist, but to go around as a structural engineer. She was wonderful. She took them around and we talked about the geometry. Why is it this shape? The challenges of building over the London underground and so on. And it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. The kids loved it. But the head teacher and the teachers, every single word they were hanging on and they came out going, that's the most inspirational thing I've ever done. I'm, I'm <laughs> going back there. It was yeah. just wonderful. And I think people in industry forget, go back to school. It was quite, you know, a bit groundhog day. Yeah. You turn oh. up, you sit through your lessons, you go home. You yeah. turn up, you sit through your lessons, you go home. And that's just, again, for teachers, it can be difficult to get something that's really, really, this is what I come to school for, apart from your kids, because I don't know one teacher who doesn't absolutely live and breathe for their kids and get them through. But when you can offer a teacher a moment like that where they can go, my God, I can use that in my lessons. That's great. You know, they really appreciate it. They yeah. really appreciate it. And I don't think people understand how much help we can actually offer teachers. We're not trying to teach. We're not trying to be them. But to give them that little shoulder, if you will, to help bring their lessons to life for real, it's just it's really, really important. So I could talk about this all day, but we've got to wrap up soon. We normally wrap up with a couple of sort of quick fire questions. So, uh -oh. <laughs> put you on the spot. It's a bit like being at Toastmasters, okay. right? You'll definitely be able to answer it. My question is if you could just change one thing, what would it be to get education to policy mandate around the world that children get applied project based learning in every classroom could, and deck? Could not agree more. <laughs> Nailed it. You're up, Robert. <laughs> yeah, that's a. Pretend that you're sitting in the classroom with a bunch of 11-year-olds and their question to you is, who should we look for as mentors? I would say to that 11-year-old, one day you will buy a house and one day you will order a sofa for your new house and you'll need to make sure it fits through your front door. You need surveying in your life. So, <laughs> so, so I laugh at that. But in terms of mentors, don't look to celebrities. Because you know what? The people who build your school and build the roads that you go to school on and build the airports that you go away on holiday from and even are going to be working in space if we ever go and have to live on the moon because this planet dies. The heroes that you need to have as mentors are building your world. They're building everything around you. So people like me, mm. like you guys, like everybody who works with us, you will never find more inspiring people. So mentors are... Talk to somebody who builds the world around you. Yeah, that's good advice. <laughs> well, you know, and it's, and it's funny, like when you're that young, you're not necessarily thinking about who should my mentors be. But if you can become that aware, like even anytime during high school, junior high, be aware that your life is not the next 24 hours. It's measured in decades. And your choice and people that you hang around with, the choice of the things that you read, what you watch, what you listen to, those are your choices. You get to choose those and they will make a difference in your life. And the sooner that you can be aware of that power, you get to be fun and you get to have fun, you know, like you have. And 
know, sometimes it takes people longer than others, but just we don't always get to choose our mentors. But if we're looking for people that should be our mentors, that's a big step right there. Eat well and look after yourself. You know, I can't say anything now, but let's repeat this in a couple of months because I'm not a big fan of the whole celebrity thing. I think social mm. media and everything else, I think some celebrities should be ashamed of themselves as role models. But there are a couple in the world who are amazing. And there's one particular one that I'll tell you more about in a couple of months who we're going to be lucky enough to do some work with. And he's just awesome. Yeah. So let's dot, dot, dot on that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to give you my favorite person in the world. Because, I mean, they probably don't even like being called celebrities. What an awful word. Celebrity. Mm. It implies like popishness, right? It Popish really, really does. But if you think about some of these people who've had the good fortune to be able to and even self-starters, because this guy particularly, he didn't have a great background either. You could almost relate him to, you know, the Johns of the world. But I think the mentor is somebody who's done good in the world and made a difference. A lot of celebrities can't say that, but there are just a handful who can. And yeah, so yeah, back. let's do this again in two months and I shall tell yeah. you who it is. Yes, no worries. I shall follow up on that. <laughs> so your avatar or your caricature would have peregrine wellers and a tripod, basically, right? Probably, yeah. And a Labrador. And a Labrador. And a Labrador. And a Labrador. Definitely yeah. a Labrador. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Always. <laughs> Black, yellow or brown? Black every time. Yeah. In fact, I've got a new baby coming. So I've got a baby three-year-old lab, um, Peg. She's amazing. Adora. And I've got uh, Nell coming in a week and a half. I am so excited. I will be sleeping <laughs> on the floor for the next three weeks with my new puppy and... Nell Gwynn coming. Okay, I love that. <laughs> my dad raised black labs as a kid. My job was to feed them and clean their kennels. And uh, they are a great dog. No doubt they about really it. They really are. Yeah. They really are. Yeah, great survey dogs. Apart <laughs> from they always nick the ground workers' sandwiches. <laughs> Which isn't good. I've got a story on that for next time. <laughs> cool. All right, so look, we will uh, wrap it up there, but I will be checking in with you in two months to see who your uh, celeb is and if we can help in any way promote your mission, class or not, any way, please ask. Yeah. You oh, I will do. It'd be great to yeah. work with you both. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Are you passionate about the built environment? Do you want to learn from the industry's most inspiring, intelligent, and accomplished professionals? Then the companion to this podcast, Wisdom of the Property Crowd, is just the book for you. From Edifice Complex Podcast Interviews, this book distills the critical thinking, insight, and ideas of some of the property industry's most accomplished and respected practitioners. Each chapter is a synopsis of an hour-plus interview, capturing the takeaways and insights, including diagrams and images, to help explain concepts and ideas. There's also a brief bio about the interviewee and a QR code linked to the podcast episode for those that want to explore further. These are the mentors you wish you had in college. Wisdom of the Property Crowd by Adam Muggleton. Available on Amazon worldwide. And now, back to the show. Member of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Do you have that on your resume, Adam? I don't have it on my resume. You got it on your resume? I'm pretty sure I'm not getting one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Alison gets these honors, and you can see why. I mean, she's enthusiastic. She's not afraid to take that step into a world that requires diplomacy, but vision and passion, all the things that she represented in the interview you know there's a reason why she gets these recognitions 
there's a passion there because the life she's trying to affect are similar lives to the ones she lived where she made that social transition, you know, from like father dying, like school's not gone great. And then there's a few corrections and this social sort of like journey, right? Now she's like, yeah. if you got an MBE, you're in the upper echelons of British society, right? I don't care how much money you have, <laughs> right? So yeah. just by definition, you're in the upper echelons. But you get that not because you've got money, but because you've made a difference. And it's normally around social issues, right? Creating betterment, enhancing people's lives, making a difference in society. That's what you get those awards for, right? Yeah. This is a great segue because someone else who was honored with the same honor was Adele. Yeah. You can ask a thousand 11 year old girls who is Alison Watson or who is Adele. Right. Yeah. And that's the difference. And we, so yeah. we talked about celebrities and, you know, it's, there are some good celebrities, you know, when she was talking with she in a couple of months, we'll chat who that is. I mean, I think one of the celebrities that has made a difference in the world and his, fame has not gone to his head and he was very generous with his money and his time and but not all celebrities are like that no you know? so so when you think the member of the british empire to get that yeah. and then you look at allison and then you look at adele who's known and yet who ultimately i'm not you know adele has has her own journey that she's been on but, but she also must have done something in the charity space or something to get that. So take, there, yeah. there's different types of celebrities. There's the, oh, look at me ones. And there's people like George Michael, right? So George Michael, after he died, it came out, he was doing all this quiet philanthropy and charity work that no one knew about because he yeah. just felt a need to put it out there, say, look at me, I'm doing all this good stuff, right? He just went and right. did that. Yeah. is how it's done. I've got to yeah. say, tip of the hat to that, right? You know, soup kitchens and he's quietly writing checks for hundred grand here and there and didn't feel the need to have his publicist put a PR press release out about it. So, you yeah, know, that's, tip of the hat for that. Yeah, that's completely different than the Kardashians, who everybody yeah, yeah. knows. You yeah. know, like, he said a couple of really things that I wrote down, and one of them was bringing math to life. And there's just no more powerful statement than that when you think about I mean, like my own story, like the math didn't mean anything until it became yeah. applicable. So I could actually apply it to where I actually understood what it was doing and how I could use that to understand stuff and how that influenced design. That's a huge statement. And her examples of measurement and getting kids to think about their own height and the yeah. distances and how you get the height of something, putting theorems to practice. Joe, you know I love I that. I love that. Like, I ask kids, uh, tell me, how wide do you think a meter is? And they're going, it's this big. Yeah, right. <laughs> so just the practicality of having it, because that lesson is going into that kid's head because they've had to raise their hands, then have it corrected, and then have the sort of cognitive dissonance that they didn't know, and then fixing that, right? That's how lessons get plugged into people's heads. When someone's just it, like writing on the chalkboard uh, and droning on. <laughs> Right? That was most wow. of my school life was like that. And then you and you move this and I was like, oh my God, when's the bell going to go? Get me out of here. Yeah. And I was like you, until I found applied math and could apply it to something I was working in, that's when I started to make progress. Yeah. Because it meant something to me. She was doing God's own work, I tell you, like affecting yeah. people's lives and just not reimagining Education, but making it applicable. 
That's yeah. the trick. You brought out, you know, during that discussion about academics and the formulas and how that becomes an ego thing. So for those listening, in the real world, no one cares about those formulas. Like, Nobody. I'm going to repeat it. No one cares. You can be the smartest person in the entire world and you can be advanced and calculus, blah, 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 blah. In the real world, I'm going to say it again. No one cares. <laughs> Competence right? and delivery matter. That's all that matters when you go to work. And yeah. no one says that to you till you get that first boss who gets angry when you don't do what you're supposed to do, right? Right, yeah, exactly. We've had some brilliant people here on the Edifice Complex, people that can run circles around other people that are doing math that no one cares about. Exactly, but exactly. <laughs> right? But that's not what defines them. Their ability to do high-level math is not what defines them. I think about Marcel, right? Like, there's a guy that's just like, I love that guy. I mean, he just has so many great gifts that he gives back to the industry. You don't see him posting shit online about high-level calculus. And also, pretty much any other industry, people would know his name, right? Yeah, right? He's the best about, secret Right, you know, Roland Cliff. When I think about Roland Cliff, we had him on, yeah. right, from Oxford. And he was talking about bubble theory, right? Yeah. And that's one of his passions. Yeah. But the thing that I remember most about Roland had nothing to do with his bubble theories. It was about ethics and engineering. And yeah, we're forced to work with Hitler. That's the real world. The yeah. theory, the mathematics of bubble theory, no one cares. No one cares yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that'd be a great name for this episode, but I couldn't say that. Alison, right? <laughs> but uh, just yeah. oh, captain, my captain, right? I felt like standing yeah. in my chair when I was speaking to her. <laughs> yeah. She said something early on, and I wrote this down, family of professionals. Yes. Now, why that's important is because when you think about design team and the hierarchy, segregation versus integration. Yeah. When you're part of a family, a good family that has leadership and there's cohesiveness and it's not that there's not mutiny or attempts at or disruption, but you're together as a team. And oftentimes we don't see the world of construction as a family of professionals. And I wrote that down because there's a story in there. There know? is. And also that is... When we're talking about like climate change, pollution, environmental degradation, it needs that family professionals approach and the application of technology and engineering, right? It needs all that thing to come together. Yeah. Rather than just really... throwing each other, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Looking our feces at each other. Yeah, it's all entertaining. It doesn't actually move the needle one jot, does it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There was a couple of times that I was really moved by things that she said. The one when she started to talk about adopt a school program. Yeah. I can't think of a more noble thing for an architectural or engineering company to do than to adopt a school in their communities that they That's work That's a good in. way of doing it, right? And then you have people in your practice dipping in and, and providing lessons and mentorship. That'd be a great solution to part of the problem, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, you know, and can you imagine, you know, like if you're whatever in grade nine and you're in grade nine, like, I don't know. I mean, there are some, probably more than I realize, kids that actually have their head in the grade. Nine. I don't know what you, Adam, when I was in grade nine, my head was not in the game. Oh. You know, I was somewhere else. But if someone had said to me in grade nine, hey, listen, we're going to go to a construction site because XYZ Engineering Company is part of the Adopt-A-School program. We are their children. We're going to go to one of their projects today. And you're going to have to put on a hard hat and wear some protective yeah. equipment and 
and all of a sudden you're in a place where people are working together and there's machinery and there's noises and there's smells and there's like all the stimulus that you're exposed to and your head's not thinking about what girl is on your radar screen or what's going on at home or how you're in trouble with the principal. Your head is like, you know, you're in a different place. Maybe you're thinking about how to steal something off the construction site. Uh, I don't know, but at least you're doing something out in the real world. Yeah, because you're showing people what's possible and what a job actually looks like. Because until you've been out to work, the only experience you have of like routine and work is being in school. Yeah. Not necessarily being engaged or happy about being there, right? Yeah. And you're showing what's possible, what's attainable, right? Even if that person who goes is the managing partner and they got a great car and all that, that is still inspirational to some kids, right? I yeah. want to be that person. I want yeah. that car. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. That Absolutely. motivates. Whatever gets things going, I'm all for it. You know, if it's the flashy car, then good on you. I can go for yeah. it. We understand there could be insurance issues, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So maybe you don't get to go on site when you're in grade nine. You'll get to go on site when you're in college. or yeah. you know. But even just being able to observe a building under construction, when we were in Dubai here, whatever it was, a couple of weeks ago or whatever that it was, it's gone by so fast already. And outside our window, a tall high-rise construction. It must have been 40 stories or something like that. I could sit there all day and watch the crane. (laughs) Well, yeah, right, because you've got multiple cranes, you've got elevators, you've got stuff being brought to the job site that has to move up and down. You've got safety issues, so people are moving barricades and strapping themselves. 40 stories up. I mean, there's a completely different environmental condition building 40 stories up than it is a ground floor the winds were coming and the crane operators were bringing up this panel. And so they had these guy wires and these people were holding on this panel so it didn't fly off into the next building. Like, it was just fascinating. You know, if you could bring a classroom of kids and grade nine students to sit on the roof of a building across from a high-rise construction going up and just observe what goes on. It's dangerous. It's exciting. It's adventurous. It's physics it's chemistry there's math and it's done there is something to point out that says the team i was part of we did that yeah i love that it's real world stuff don't you find you're never off duty though whenever i'm looking at stuff i think oh that don't look safe they should do something (laughs) about that (laughs) absolutely oh man you just trigger something i was driving by um there's a property just down the road from us a house and there was a couple of them from the day one from the excavation was a mess. Yeah. It was just rubbish. The construction management, like it was terrible. There was materials were scattered everywhere. The site got flooded. And then down the road, there's a house being built by a plumber. Now, for those who are listening, I know more millionaire plumbers than I know millionaire doctors, yes. lawyers, engineers. Anyways, Phil is building a house down the road. As a young man, he ended up buying into one of the local contracting companies that became well-known. They were you know, yeah. one of the top firms in the province. Anyways, you drive by that construction site, everything, perpendicular, parallel, plumb, square, no rubbish anywhere. Yeah, anywhere where there's, been, water, yeah. there's just a completely different construction site. And so there you have, that's no different than the kid that cleans up his room and the kid that doesn't clean up his room. Like, I mean, you right. go into those spaces... Yeah. 
and they're different and you can see it and it's like well well who do you want building your houses and your buildings do you want people that have that ability to understand flow site hygiene yeah is so, so important site housekeeping is what we call it in the uk is i can look at a site and tell you how good or bad things are just by how they keep that site tidy that absolutely. tells me everything i need to know about what's going on there absolutely yeah, yeah. anyway so we should wrap up <laughs> On housekeeping, that's a lot. <laughs> but yeah, I'll tell you, I'm really looking forward to connecting with Alison again because she is someone to watch and yep. she's doing God's own work there, in my opinion. Yeah, good for her. And she definitely inspired me. And anytime someone can move me the way she did, uh, that's obviously a good message. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Okay, mate, I'll see you on the next one. Take care. All right. Cheers, Adam. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.